Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, author Amy Tan is known for her portrayals of Chinese and Chinese-American lives, and especially mother-daughter bonds. Her relationship with her own mother, Daisy, was fraught, to say the least, but it also inspired her writing. Now Tan has written Where the Past Begins, a writer's memoir. The work sheds light on how Tan's traumatic early life informed her writing. Amy Tan spoke with Seattle writer Lori Frankel on October 25th at the Seattle Public Library's Central Library. Sonia Harris recorded the discussion. Without further ado, please help me welcome Rick Simonson from Ellie Bay Book Company, who's going to introduce Amy Tan. Thank you, Stasha, and thank all of you very much for being here, all of you who went through the long lines and everything to get in and be in. Um, I've been fortunate enough, I think, to have introduced Amy Tan for each of her, at least all of her adult books. Uh, And some of you know the story, in fact, it ran in the Seattle Times that her very first appearance ever for the Joy Luck Club in March of 1989 happened in the basement of Elliott Bay, and it was not this big a crowd. But it was a, there was an audience, there was an awareness um, from the get-go um, uh, as to the uh, l- literary excellence and, and, and the nature of the story writing she, was, she had done. And um, you could feel it that night. And um, it's been such ever since. And there is a tendency to think she's written you know, so many books because her books have this great kind of um, awareness of them in the, in the culture, each one. Uh, that's come out. There have been six novels, uh, The Kitchen God's Wife, uh, The Hundred Secret Senses, The Bone Bone Setter's Daughter, uh, Saving Fish from Drowning, and the most recent, uh, the last novel, The Valley of Amazement, which came out four years ago, um, plus the book of uh, autobiographical autobiographical essays called The Opposite of Fate. It's a nonfiction book she's here with tonight, um, an amazing book um, entitled Where the Past Begins, and the subtitle is A Writer's Memoir. And it is a chronicle of her writing life, although as you read, you're also not sure if it's gonna burst into song or into artwork because um, Amy draws on, on other forms of expression um, and, and writes about it, that writing is not the only form she's done. And um, it's among the many um, surprises, delights, and pleasures of this book, which, um, looks a lot of her family's story and her own story and does so in a form of various stories. Um, and, and many of the forms of writing um, are her own but from different periods. And so you have um, her perspective on her past and her future when she's 25, on when she's 40, when she's 50, when she's 60. I mean, all these different ways all these things seem. And um, you get her form of insight and, um, and again, written in great sense of story. So. Uh, tonight, she will um, is here with us, and uh, with her on st- up here will be Lori Frankel, uh, the wonderful Seattle writer, author of three novels, most recently, um, at the uh, tell it, no, see, it's, I always forget this mixed up. This is how it always is. Uh, a wonderful novel that was, in fact, the launch of the paperback will be here um, in the spring. Um, another thing to say this about Amy, though, being here tonight, um, she this book was published uh, one week ago. It's already going, getting on. It just the word just came through. It'll be on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, you know, right from the again from the get go. But uh, she's not going to many cities, and um, for the, for doing this, uh, she 
lives in San Francisco, so of course there. And she's published in New York, so of course there. But she's only going to four other cities, and this is one of them. So uh, it feels like an extra special um, gift and boon that she is, is doing this um, when we are all deeply uh, grateful for. So tonight, um, Amy and Lori will be up here. They'll have a, a conversation, go where they go. There will be a point where um, questions are taken, and these will be in the form of written questions that um, people from the library will run up and down the stairs and get a good workout uh, and uh, collect them, and then uh, Lori will read them to Amy uh, up here, and then following that, the book signing. We have um, copies of Amy's books down here at this table, and you get them here, and the line's out there. And Stasha used to be a bookseller, so she knows this whole book drill um, quite well. For all of us, again, um, at the Seattle Public Library from Elliott Bay Book Company, we thank you all very much for being here. And now, Ashley, please join in giving a great Seattle welcome to wonderful writer Amy Tan in, co in company with Lori Frankel. Thank you. I always imagined this room's going to be empty, so I'm glad <laughs> you're all here. Yeah, and I don't think I've ever seen this room this full. It's really wonderful that you all are here. Thank you so much for coming. I hope you feel, I, I feel uh, nervous and giddy and honored to be doing this. I hope you all feel nervous and giddy and honored also. <laughs> Um, I, I geeked out a little bit on this book. I, the other thing I want to say is I feel very smug because I've read it and you all haven't yet because it only came out last week. And, um, and I feel very envious of you because you, you haven't yet to read. I made pages and pages and pages of notes. Um, and some of them were just, just for me, for my writer self. But I also have lots of questions. But I'm also mindful that you all have lots of questions and we promise to save time for them. Um, but I thought we should start at the beginning. So, one of the things that I, so the very first thing I underlined, and I underlined a lot, is, um, is this notion. You say, much of what I think I remember is inaccurate. And I think that's such a wonderful thing for a fiction writer, but a slightly less good thing for a memoirist, and a really brave, and maybe even scandalous thing to admit on page three <laughs> of, your, <laughs> of your memoir. And I wondered if you could start off just by talking about the difference between the act of remembering for novel writing versus the act of remembering for memoir writing. Well, what, what I meant by that actually is that we continue to revise what we think and what we, so that by a, a certain period in life, um, my notion of what happened when I was younger has been distorted by who I am at the present moment. And so as an example, I, for example, thought that my father loved me the most and that I was a favorite. And I, I discovered in looking through different materials that wasn't the case. So it's, it's not only a failure of memory, the original memory, but also understanding what's there. Now, in fiction, you get to make it up, of course. But you have to have the same qualities of memory. You have to have it um, be believable. Everything that I think is believable. It may not, however, be the actual correct version of what happened in the, in the present moment that was the past. 
Right, right. Because, and you talk about how your mother had this idea that stories could change the past, which is a really remarkable idea. You know, we have this notion that storytelling can change the present, and the present could use some changing. And certainly we believe that storytelling can change the future, but storytelling changing the past seems like a completely different idea to me. Well, it had to, you know, the way she thought of it, it had to do with the way that we witness something or the way that we feel about the consequences of what happened. And so she was referring to her life, um, the daughter of a concubine who killed herself, and the shame that she and her mother had to bear. When I was writing about this, her brother said, why do you tell her these useless things? She can't change the past. And my mother said, my mother who kept this a secret from me, um, most of my childhood until, you know, the, I was in my 20s, she said to him, she can change the past. She can tell everybody. She can tell everybody what my mother suffered, and that's how she can change the past. That my grandmother wouldn't die this anonymous, tragic, pitiful creature. She would be remembered as a strong woman who had injustices inflicted on her. Yes, that was one of maybe a dozen times I wept during the, in, while I was reading this book. Um, you want to talk a little bit about, I mean, I have so many questions about the difference between writing a novel, because you were an expert at writing a novel, you have written so many wonderful novels, and writing a memoir. I, you, have this, you have this part where you talk about um, losing your voice on the anniversary of your friend's death, and I think, oh, I know someone that happened to. And then I thought, no, wait, I read that in a book. And then I was like, oh, no, wait, I read that in your book. <laughs> um, about the difference between between writing fiction and writing, and writing something like this? Um, you know, th this book was both one of the hardest things I've ever written, but also one of the most natural. Um, I wrote this, most of this in a fugue state, and it was out of sheer panic that I had to do something and get it out by a deadline. And I almost think that what came out of this is more um, true in a, in a, if you were to take a narrative line and try to find it, you know, which you try to do with a novel, you have to pull this narrative line out. This just came pouring out of me in almost a natural narrative line. Because I, here's the thing. I did not know what was going to happen next oftentimes. I was finding out things about my family through these boxes of memorabilia at the time I'm writing. So I didn't know why my father lied in a particular instance. And I pick a document up, and I find out we're an illegal family, and we can be deported, for example. Um, novels have that kind of suspense where you don't know. And this is, this is the thing about writing, too, a novel is that you have to have a certain unpredictability. This is part of originality. You have to have unpredictability as you move forward in your narrative so that you are discovering something new at the same time you are writing. And yet, you have to know what you're doing. So it's this paradox. It's, it's, it's crazy making. You, know, you, you can go insane when writing for that reason. This one, I started off insane, and I just continue to write. Awesome, yes, okay. 
I got to ask about those boxes. I want to talk about the boxes of stuff. The book, for those of you who have not yet got your hands on it, um, is full of photos and drawings and documents and letters. Um, and they're really precious, really remarkable objects. And you talk a lot about the, the emotion of, of finding these boxes and, and going through them. Um, I wonder about the decision to, to, put them in, to put them in as is. Yeah, I mean, you can't edit like you can do with fiction. <laughs> you can't make your parents sound better or worse. Um, there were diaries, my father's diaries every year. There were report cards, letters between my mother and me. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, was, I was looking at all of this and trying to both digest what I was finding and then write. It took me probably three or four of these before I achieved a rhythm where I would just take something out and say, I want to write about this. No, everything that I wrote, did, I'm not everything, made it into this book. I wrote, however, 15 to 30 new pages a week, if you can believe that. And those pages pretty much stayed in, in its structure, in its form, the way that you see in the book. That was my decision. I would have revised this book extensively if it were not for my editor. <laughs> you think of editors as wanting you to make it better. And my editor simply wanted to publish it right away. So I, I, I do have to say, I am not proud of the writing that is in this book, but it, it just came out in that particular way. Um, you know, I wondered with some of the, the letters that I should block something out. Um, and I just, I just left it in, because this is like a record. This is my one chance to make a record of who I am as a writer. So there was an underlying reason. There were a number of reasons, but one of the underlying reasons is that people have always, you know, thought of me in a certain way as this mother-daughter expert, for one thing, or that I'm writing about immigrant tales and not really understanding who I am as a writer. So I thought if I put it in a book, it's indisputable who I am, you know. Um, and that way there's, you know, over the... Everybody thinks you're supposed to save your papers and give them to some library. And I thought, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to burn those things. And the record of who I am is right here, the way I wanted to put it down. Okay, because that makes me wonder, do you think of the letters as being more like photographs or more like writing? Oh, the letters are def definitely writing. Um, it's communication, and what I discovered, it's communication that you that is very different from what you have face-to-face -face with somebody. It can be confessional, confrontational, and that's why I put that in there. A lot, the letters from my mother and me, as well as the letters between me and my editor, and I learned something quite um, important to me as a fiction writer, and that is the way that I write emails is spontaneous. It's completely off the top of my head. It's completely unedited. It's every random thought that just happens to come, and it may be something about the book, but it also could be something that happened that day with my dog. Mm. And um, my editor seemed to like these emails, so we wrote, we have about, at the time of the writing, we had about 15,000 of these emails. Um, a lot of them were really boring. They were things like, um, where do you want to meet, you know, or <laughs> what time? It was sort of like SMS. But there were ones 
that really, I thought, revealed the process that we had as writer and editor. He's a very special editor, by the way. I don't think most editors would have indulged me with, you know, just running off spouting. Um, but they are not the kinds of things that I would say to him face to face. And we get together and we're friends and we have dinner, but I can put down there what I would never say to somebody. So that is the notion of what I, what I had taken when I reviewed all this, the letters from my mother, which are confrontational or confessional and very honest, and also kind of, she's very spontaneous about saying she lost her purse or she's just going on, you know, wandering, which is what I do as well. Um, and, and then that um, sort of a lack of self-consciousness. And this is, this is something I think we, novelists have to do is to lose that self-consciousness consciousness if we can and simply write off the top of our heads and then go back and throw it away or keep what's good about it. Yes, it's very, it's a very interesting book in that I'm following along and it's doing its thing and I think, okay, I know what you're doing, I, I understand what this book is doing, and then all of a sudden, three quarters of the way through, it becomes epistolary. And that's, I've, I don't think I've ever read another book where, where that happened, it was very surprising. It felt like email. It felt like, you know, this thing that had just popped up in my inbox um, going forward. We'll talk a little bit about the, it's a very interesting format for, for a memoir um, and a very interesting relationship to have with your editor because the editor-author yeah. relationship is always a partnership, but, but not, not like that and not that early in the creative yeah. process. Well, you know, the emails do talk, we're, we're getting to know each other. So you, you see this progression of emails, and then you see um, we're talking about food, we're talking about, about the book, about my doubts, about terrible writing I think I've done, and um, that, that is all there. Um, but what I did in taking that spontaneous off the top of the head writing was to do an exercise in a couple of places and one was to take, for example, a memory, a very vague memory, and just write off the top of my head where that memory would go based on the visceral feelings that I still had that were left over. I just found that they were still there. So I just followed them. And it was about a time I was in the car, my brothers and I were in the car with my parents, and my mother was upset, and I started noticing these little things about her. I was very observant, you know, how, what the tone of her voice was, whether she made eye contact with my father, whatever, what dress she was wearing, was her hair nicely done, um, and then just getting really nervous, and I followed the, you know, the, my hands, where my hands could, I, I couldn't make a fist, and that brought back more memories, and so you'll see there's, there's this writing exercise, but it takes me back to a memory where I am right there. And that is basically, from start to finish, the way I wrote it when I sat down. Um, it's a little, the, the editing that was done really was to simply shorten it. Um, yeah, it, and it went on a little too long as it was, but it was such a complete experience that I, I, I wanted to keep it as is. Yes, it is, it is, that's exactly what it is. It, it is, reading it is the experience of watching someone remember something. And 
and not, and that has never happened to me before. Before. Yeah, we you know, it's sort of. Sometimes I felt like this was, you know, three faces of Eve. You know, where, <laughs> you know, I have this psychological confession, and it's just coming out. You know, I'm lying on a couch, and all this memory stuff is coming out. The only difference is I, I'm not doing this so that I can have resolution or epiphany and. Um, you know, suddenly I'm healed. You know, I, I'm not looking for that as a writer. My my message as a writer is to stay damaged, to stay disturbed, because this is your material as a writer. Um, you have to be confused. You have to be conflicted, contradictory. Um, you have to ask questions and always be curious. And if you're happy, it just doesn't work. Right. <laughs> it's good news. It's really it's great news. Um, you talk about, you talk a lot, you, there are a lot of drawings in here, and you talk a lot about, about drawing, um, and one of the things you said was that people recommend that you draw the bird and then the eye, but that you like to draw the eye yeah. and then the bird. <laughs> Y'all, this is fantastic. So that the bird can watch her draw it, which is awesome. Um, I wonder if that's the way, if you feel like that's the way you write, too, you write you write the eye before you write the bird. Huh, that's an interesting question. Well, the question would be, who is the eye? And in this book, definitely the eye was me. Or actually, the eye was me at different ages as I'm reflecting um, when I choose a memory. I am exactly that person. And I, it was um, a, a, a very strange state to be in because I would go into that child and then I would recognize the child was a progression of, of all these parts of me up until this point. So it really is me, but I have the hindsight. And I had to have the immediacy of, of the past, but I had the other part as well. So the I really was for the child um, I was writing about. In the novels, it's been different. It was my grandmother and my mother were most typically my readers the eye looking at me, and, and I had to have the notion of an eye because that was the um, truth detector. This is gonna, we're on public radio, so I couldn't use the other one, which is <laughs> blank detector. Um, so I had to have that. Was I saying something was not uh, true? And what I mean by that is it has nothing to do with facts. It has to do with, is this what you really feel? Is this what it really means? Um, and so that's important to the eye. And for the child that I was writing for, that was equally important. Yeah, it's so interesting to think about the, the pursuit of truth in, in memoir versus in fiction, especially if you say things, and you do, such as, I distrust photographs. Then, then yeah. this idea of yeah. archival changes completely. Yeah. I know, you think photographs are indisputable. There they are, they're, you know, you can't alter them, they're frozen celluloid or whatever it is now, digital. Um, but in fact, what you don't see is the context of the photo. Like who put the photo, t the, this posed group together, unposed together, who is not in the picture, who is smiling only because the photographer said to smile. Um, what happened before immediately and what happened after. So I didn't take photos, by looking at this, I didn't take photos as being the truth of what happened. But it was evidence 
of certain elements. For example, um, I didn't think we had that many books when I was growing up. We had some donated books, we had some fairy tales. I saw a photo in which I was about three years old and very clearly I am unwrapping a package that contains a book. So there you go. How do you think memoir writing and, and archival research like this will change now that everyone is carrying a phone around in their pocket all the time and using it with abandon? And the idea that photographs are, are meant to last has, has gone away. This is the bane of archival libraries, I think, because you know they, they want the stuff you can touch, the stuff that Tim O'Brien's that has the snot on it, you know. And, and all of this, you know, the emails, you're not having these personal letters written, you know, with the scrawls and the, and the um, spattered ink and the tears on the page. Um, it's going to be digital. And they are not interested in the digital forms for their, and I know this because I've been approached by archivists for this. And it, it, the idea that somebody be reading your letters and going over your very private documents later in life really gave me the creeps. I mean, the idea you're dead and you can't say anything. And, and somebody's looking at it. Obviously, this letter means, and you can't go back. No, it doesn't. You know. So my decision after being asked to donate my papers, I guess they look at you and you got some actuarial life left. But you know, the, the thing, the span is shortening, so they try to get to you. And I just thought, no, this is too creepy. I'm going to burn my stuff. <laughs> so, yeah. I do, I, I'll, I, I don't know whether this follows with your question, but I, I have um, a really strange thing that happened where I was both the child and the adult looking at this. Um, I, I started thinking about this test that I took when I was six years old and took twice a year until the end of the fifth grade. My parents told me um, this was a test that showed I would, was smart enough to be a doctor. And since I was going to be a doctor, I should be a neurosurgeon, in addition to being a concert pianist. So there were all these expectations put on me at a very early age. So I grew up with a standard of failure. You know, because I, I was not good at piano and I was not smart enough. I didn't think, I didn't want to be a doctor, but um, that followed me the rest of my life. If I got a bad review, I was thinking, oh yeah, you were supposed to be a doctor. You weren't smart enough. You know, any failure that I had, I went back to that grade in, that, that test in, in the first grade. Well, one day, you know, around the time I was writing this book, I said, well, what was that test about? This is a test that governed my self-esteem up until my current age. And I thought, well, no professional would have given a test and told parents that this is what your child is going to do. You know, this. so I took a chance and I typed in certain words. You can do this now. You know, I realized, I typed in on the internet, I, I, I put down first grade, 1958, uh, Oakland IQ test longitudinal. And longitudinal because this, I took 10 of these tests. And the first thing that popped up was 
reference to a book by a woman named Dolores Durkin. It was called Children Who Learn to Read Early. This was a test about 49 children out of 5,000 in the Oakland School District that year who had learned to read before the first grade. That's all the test was about. And they wanted because, and, and you think, only 49 kids out of 5,000 could read when they entered the first grade? You know, I mean, two-year-olds today are sending text messages. <laughs> in those days, people said it was dangerous that you should not teach your child, and it would ruin them. They'd be, you know, damaged and emotionally disturbed and, you know, have learning disabilities and wet their bed the rest of their life or something. And it's amazing how many parents listen, but 49 of them were criminals, and somehow their children learned to read. So I was one of those kids, and I thought, this was about the fact that I could read. In this book, there were five interviews out of the 49, and I, I quickly scanned through there, and my name wasn't there, but I realized, no, the woman would have masked the name, because there was a there was a child, a Chinese oriental child, it, it said. And the mother says, I learned that you cannot make children appreciate music. And I thought, oh, that's my mother. <laughs> and I started reading, and I read all these things that just crushed me. That's when I found out I wasn't my father's favorite. My older brother was, because all he could do was talk about my older brother. You know, me, it was like, oh, well, forget about her. But my son, he's brilliant, you know. And we didn't teach him to read early. Um, and as for her, we don't know how she read. Maybe her, other, her older brother taught her. Who knows? <laughs> um, yeah. So, but from that one interview, going, it was like stepping into the living room of the past. And me being this little girl, now I'm watching it. I'm 60-something years old, and I'm in the living room, and I'm waiting for... You know, seeing everything that's being said, oh, he's precocious, you know, he did this and he did that, and I'm waiting for him to say something about me. And finally he does. And he said, oh, she's always been a scribbler. Even before the age of four, she liked to draw pictures and make up stories about them. She has an amazing imagination. And that was enough to make me cry. Yeah, of course. It wasn't, you know, it was it, at that age, these two things, drawing pictures and making up stories, they're inseparable. It's not that I drew a picture and made up a story, made a story, drew a picture. I think they just happen at the same time at that age. So I'm still drawing pictures. Let's talk about your parents, since you bring them up. Let's talk about, and because you talk about them so much, and you talk about them so much in the book, and you... And as you said at the beginning, you, you do in your fiction write a lot about, about parents and about mothers. How is it, how is it different writing, writing about your parents as characters rather than writing about fictional parents? You mean writing about them as they really were and not as characters? I, I didn't think of them as characters. I thought of them as you know, who they were. And I was afraid that I would present too many things that would cast them in a particular light that was not um, true, you know, because you have to have many perspectives of people, and it's the same with characters in a novel. 
you cannot have these characters be one-dimensional or perfect or completely, completely flawed or unflawed. Um, I was afraid that I would be talking about moments in particular about my mother, my mother's life and mine together that would cast her as a terrible person. And um, I was told by people, no, she comes across very sympathetically and that people love her in this book. Well, this is, of course, this is my editor. <laughs> no, I love this, you know, too. he'll say anything to get a book published. So, um, but, you know, there's, she's a lot darker. If you were to look at this and say, oh, the mother is the basis for the mothers in the novels. Well, you didn't have a mother in the novel who tried to kill her daughter with a cleaver, for example. Or the mothers in the novels never routinely threaten suicide and occasionally try in front of the children. Um, my father doesn't appear in as a character in novels that much except as somebody who dies early, which is what my father did. He died when I was 15, as did my older brother uh, the same year. Um, but I felt I could never write about my father because my memory of him was that of a perfect person. An unflawed, kind, generous person who never told a lie. And I started going through these documents, and it was like, no, he lied. No, he was not very sincere. No, I mean, the other parts of it, he was all those things I believed, but he was real. He was human. He had these parts of him that were, they weren't perfect. And some, you know, seeing, seeing how, um, he would say things that were sort of um, obsequious, for example. Um, and then I had to see him in terms of how he would be today as a person. I wrote about my father for the first time, and it's the last thing I wrote for this book. I wrote it the day, the, the week, two weeks after the election. I was supposed to turn it in the week after the election. I was unable to write. Um, and the only thing I could think of when I started to write this chapter was how would my father have voted? And it forced me to examine everything I knew about him, searching for a clue to this question. Um, and, I, and I went through these moments in childhood. And it was very strange how it happened as I recall these moments, just off the top of my head. And they had a lot to do with falling, going down a slide, or you know, being up in a tree. Or, and he was supposed to save me. He gave me courage. He had me do things I wouldn't have done otherwise. I fell, and then he picked me up and comforted me. So that was a lot of it. And it was so surprising to me that this pattern came up over and over again. And then there's the answer, um, how he would have voted. And it took me a long time to get to that point. Yeah, and it's a really, it's a hard week to end a book, I think, that week after the election. It's just a tough, a, a tough time to come to the end of something, of something yeah, like this. Yeah, It is not the last chapter in this book, by the way. The order of these pieces um, did not follow the order in which I wrote them, but it, I couldn't write. I, yeah. I thought I'm never going to be able to write anymore for, you know, I was so disturbed. Um, I, and then I, I, 
started thinking about, it was not just about my father, but everything about our country and how my father would have fit into that had he, had he lived. You know, he was a Baptist minister. He was an evangelical. Um, but at the same time, I had to remember, he would have been aware then that Martin Luther King had been assassinated, and he was a Baptist minister, and he led the Civil Rights March. My father never saw that or never knew about that. So I thought if he had gone through these experiences as we had, you know, that also would have affected his opinion. So, okay, so because Desha tells me we have five minutes, I want to think about that going, that forward-looking that, that you're talking about, that the, the political part, the, the forward-looking part, um, the imagining into the future part. One of the things you say here is, uh, wait, I wrote it down because it was so good, Imagine more, obey less. You said, I'm having t-shirts made because that's so smart and that's so well done. Um, I think it's resist more, obey less. Resist. I, I, yeah. I love it. I, I love resist. it. Resist. Walt Whitman had, had that. He, he owned that before, before, before anybody else. No, you totally pulled it up. Resist yeah. much, you know, obey, obey little, resist much. You know, towards the end, you talk about um, that people aren't buying books anymore, present company accepted, and that we are therefore starving our brains. And, and this made me think of your mother and, and this idea that storytelling changes the world. Do you have thoughts about how, how we can feed our brains, how we can make people feed their brains? <laughs> if they refuse to buy books. Feed their, feed their brains. You know, you've never, you can't force people to read. You just have to write the best story they want to read. You have to look at how people read, which is on their phones these days, frankly. There's, um, you know, I, I actually um, think that what's going to happen next, not ebooks, because those are actually declining in sales, but this um, new platform, they call it. Um, where you read 1,000-word uh, stories on your phone, and if they're really good, you, you just keep reading until you get to a point where if you want to read the next one, you have to pay for it. So that's how people, I think, writers are going to make their money, is they're going to have to write really, you know, it's kind of time-tested in the present time. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I think you just have to write the stories, and I, I, that the need for reading for poetry, fiction, novels, nonfiction is there. Um, if we write it, maybe they'll come. <laughs> One of the things that you say, and I just thought, wow, that's true, is that each novel is harder to write every time each novel is harder to write. It's one of these things that you think, oh, I, I learned that last time, but no, no, it actually gets harder each time. I wonder if having written a memoir is gonna make novel writing easier going forward next time? I think it's going to be, at times, easier and it's going to be more difficult because of so much of what I learned about writing and memory and how fictional narrative actually brings out these emotional cores. Um, I, um, and a lot of this began with, you know, the writing mind, what, what I mean by creativity, imagination, metaphor, and all of that kind of stuff. So I will know how that applies to those fictional elements. But at the same time, I'm going to probably be more self-conscious. Um, 
I go through this with every single book. I get to a point where I know this is not going to work. And at times, it, it hasn't. And I've thrown away, that, well, I didn't literally threw it away. I put it in a box. And that, that was among the things that, were, that I found in these boxes. Um, every single time, I have this feeling and I'm seized with existential dread. Um, and I think that I've, I've lost my mind and I have some kind of brain disease. And then I just keep writing. Um, by the way, I just want to mention, there, is, there are two chapters in there that are pieces of fiction, and they are outtakes from abandoned novels. And unfortunately, we, in the rush of writing this, I, I wrote that in the preface, but apparently people don't read prefaces, including, <laughs> including interviewers you know, who asked me questions about the time that I was in an auto accident because a fox crossed the road, and it was too bad I couldn't teach linguistics anymore at UC Berkeley. Um, so these two pieces, it's the beginning, the, uh, the Breaker of Combs, a prologue to an abandoned novel, and then Language, a love story about dead languages. That was also a prologue to an abandoned novel. Yeah. I could tell. Well, my husband didn't. Oh. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just joking. My husband, who's here, we've... <laughs> been together for 47 years. And he thought that I, I lied about the memoir that I said. <laughs> I said, he said, I don't remember the fox. I mean, we'd been in auto accidents, he says, but I don't remember the fox. And I thought, oh my god. <laughs> I made it <laughs> he, up. he thinks I would I'm have novelist. made up my memoir, uh, you know, dramatized an auto accident. Um, yeah, so there you go. OK, I have lots of good questions here. I'm going to do everything I can to read them well. OK, so as an Asian American first generation, I often lament what I perceive to be a distinctly Asian American culture, like, say, African American culture. I perceive only the intersection of Asian and American culture is there. In your opinion, oh, sorry. Sorry. Is there, in your opinion, a distinctly Asian American culture? Will we develop one? Does it matter if we don't? There is no single. Asian American culture, and I think that um, misunderstanding in a general audience is the reason why, you know, we end up having these gross generalizations of people, whether it's any ethnic community, Asian American, African American. Um, in the Asian American community, you have firstborn, I mean, you have first generation, second generation, ones who, uh, you know, traditional ones who, you know, are, are completely uh, anti-parent, Chinese parent in their culture, in their, in their rebellion. I mean, it, it is so different. I used to have people say, would say to me, you know, my mother doesn't speak broken English. How can you write about mothers who speak broken English? And I, and I or concubines, that, that's, we've never had concubines. And I said, you know, my mother spoke broken English. My grandmother was a concubine. She killed herself. I said, but there needs to be a lot more out there so people get over this notion that there's only one culture and there's only one culture that can be written about. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask if that answered the question, but I don't know who asked that question. Um, I'm struggling with forgiving my Chinese mother for my own childhood. It seems you've forgiven yours. How did that forgiveness come about? <laughs> um, question, right? 
hardcore. You know what's funny? What writing this, and I was remembering all the pains of the ch my childhood. Somebody asked me that this thing about forgiveness, and I will say that I thought a lot about this the notion of forgiveness over the last few years. I am not the kind, generous, open-hearted person you may think I am based on reading my books. I have a very strong streak of not forgiving people if they have betrayed me in some way or been what I think are cruel, un irredeemable human beings. So, um, but it never occurred to me that my mother was that person. My mother was disturbed and she, she gave me a lot of who I am today. Not that I'm exactly like her, but the kinds of questions that I think about, and in the same way my father has. My mother, for one thing, taught me to detect, discern truth in people, genuineness in people, and falsity. It's a very, very important ability to have when you're a, a, a writer, a fiction writer. So, in so many ways, she was wonderful. So it never occurred to me I had to forgive her. Um, she said something at the end of her life anyway when she was, had Alzheimer's. Um, she came to the surface one day and she was seemingly clear. And she said, I just want to tell you I'm sorry. I, I hurt you when you were little. And I said, no, no, you didn't doesn't matter. And she said, no, no, I know I did. I just can't remember what I did. I just want you to forget like I've forgotten. I'm sorry. If I had not forgiven her up to that point, I would have forgiven everything. I think what every child wants to hear from the parent is, all those times I hurt you, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. All right. Have you ever imagined yourself being born in China to the same parents? What life would be like? Would you be writing? What would you be writing about? I sort of have the answer to that because I have three half-sisters. My mother's first, her daughters from her first marriage, and they were left behind in China. They went through the Cultural Revolution. They were sent to the countryside and had to work in the rice fields as farmers. They were denied um, education in some cases assigned to their jobs, assigned to, in one case, to the man they would marry. Um, one of them said to me that she always wanted to do something creative, but she felt that now her mind was rusted and she would never be able to do that. I don't know whether that's true, but I definitely would not have ever tried to write anything and publish it. Um, China has gone through periods in the past where you couldn't write things, the kind of things that are you know, being written today. And there's a lot of literature that's it's very different, but um, who knows? You know, it goes back to this, this question of nature and nurture and what things can you not suppress in an individual. Incredible to think about. All right, so this is a question about the title. Um, why, where the past begins? What does it mean? <laughs> yes, you have to read the book. indeed, indeed. Um, the title, the much better title, was the one I gave this in the beginning. <laughs> it was called The Writer's Mind, or no, A Writer's Mind. What do you think? Kitschy? <laughs> um, somehow my editor was not really enthusiastic, and he said, okay, we'll use that as a placeholder. 
And, <laughs> and then one day after I had written about seven or eight of these things, he sent me this title page. And it said, Where the Past Begins by Amy Tan. And I thought, well, that's audacious. You know, because I'm the kind of writer, you, you can say my writing is bad, but just don't change it yourself. Just tell me it's bad, and I will, I will fix it the best I can. But here, he, where the past begins, he, he said, what do you think? And I said, well, yeah, it's nice, I guess. And, he, and, I, and I said, why did you choose that? And he said, well, you wrote it. And I said, I did? And he said, yeah, the last thing you sent me was the last line. <laughs> I said, great, <laughs> great, great title. You know, this is the thing. So much of this was written in this fugue state that I don't remember things that I've written. And this has been true with every novel. Um, I don't remember lines. Uh, I included a lot of journal, or little, I call them quirks, excerpts from my journals. These are a lot of the things I don't remember thinking. But I put them down, and obviously I did. I write these things off the top of my head, and then they're gone. But they're, st they're still there. They're still there. And that's why you need an editor to say, oh, I'm a genius. Yeah, I no. wrote this really amazing thing. He gives thing. me full credit for yeah. those things. <laughs> All right, someone wants to know about your thoughts about um, written storytelling versus oral storytelling. Written storytelling, oral storytelling. Um, I, I prefer the written form because you get to revise it. Oral storytelling is very difficult because of the very nature of an audience and the time limits. You need to have, and I know this from having given talks, you need to have a very strong beginning, you have to have a developmental narrative, an arc, and you have to have a very strong ending. And during that time, you have to think of all the ways this is going to wind in and out until you get to this was, you know, this wonderful conclusion to the story. Um, it takes a lot of work to do the oral storytelling because at the same time you have the complication of a cell phone going off or the person in the front row falling asleep. And um, you, these are all things that enter into the oral storytelling tradition. Um, so I much prefer written stories. For me, I, I much prefer that. Uh, and I like listening to oral storytelling as when it's done really well. Yeah, agreed. All right, so somebody has a question about Kitchen God's Wife. Why the main character had MS? Why the main character had a what? Had MS. Had MS. Um, what was the nature <laughs> of that? You know, these all had reasons at the time. The, 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 daughter, the daughter has a secret, and, um, and she can't, it, it's, it's a life-changing secret, and she can't tell her mother, and at the end it is revealed, um, and it's reflected through that, that, that secret that she has, and her mother has a, a big secret as well. Um, it probably was because, I mean, there's obvious metaphoric reasons why I did that, but probably because there was a friend at the time who had that, and I was seeing what kind of ambiguity, ambiguity she saw in her life now, uh, uncertainties. Um, quite by coincidence, I broke my leg skiing that year, and I, would, I had to go out for a while um, on crutches, and people read the book, and they'd MS. 
Oh, yeah. Um, that they thought that it was real. Yeah. It, and it precluded, there are a number of things in this book that, in these other books that um, were almost prescient of what was going to happen to me later. The fictional piece, love, uh, Language of Love Story, this woman becomes brain damaged and has a hard time holding contiguous thoughts. And I became brain damaged by Lyme disease, and the same thing happened to me. So I thought, wow, this is, this was, it was as though, you know, it's, it's Twilight Zone. Yeah. And you've made up something, and it actually becomes your life. That's amazing, right? That's I amazing. don't have MS, so. Okay, good. Yeah. Good work. All right. This is a good question. Writing a novel can take a lot of time and energy and blood and soul. What do you do after you write a novel to rejuvenate yourself, and how do you get yourself ready to write the next book? Um, well, what I've been doing lately, uh, part, of it, part of it has to do with um, post-election and my determination to find beauty in the world. And so I started taking a nature journaling class, and that meant going out in nature quite a bit, but I'm sketching. Uh, drawing was something I started doing when I was a child, and I wanted to be an artist, secretly. Um, I gave up the notion when my high school teacher wrote in my report card that I had admirable skills, but that I lacked ima imagination, <laughs> which is uh, important to a deeper creative level. <laughs> um, you showed him. Yeah. <laughs> so I've been drawing. If, you, if, if you're on Facebook, um, you, you would have seen a lot of my drawings, and they're usually of birds or animals, squirrels, cats, whatever. And it's the one thing, what I love doing about it is that I know it's not going to be my profession. No one expects it to be perfect. And I suffer from this problem with not wanting to show things until it's perfect, and I've just beaten it to death. So I just put it out there, even if it's bad, like the bird I just put out. The spinal column doesn't exactly follow where the, the <laughs> tail comes out. I, I saw it later, but I, I, I don't care. You know, it's, it's just there. It was more important to document to me that this was the first winter migrating bird that came into my yard. It was a dark-eyed junco, and it was feeding uh, a ground feeder hopping around. So that, to me, was the most important part of that, and I happened to draw a picture of it. I also, you know, I... Uh, do things that have to do with nature, like swim with sharks. <laughs> I actually love swimming with sharks. Um, just anything, really, basically anything to do with nature. Yeah. Also hardcore. What struggles have you had as a writer of color? What struggles? Struggles. Um, you know, in the beginning, I, I had a fear that I was putting down things incorrectly and that I would have people from China say, you got it wrong, how dare you, you know. Um, one billion Chinese people are angry at you. Because um, <laughs> my mother used to tell me I knew nothing about being Chinese. And, uh, but I was really, I was always you know, beaming inside whenever somebody from China said, yeah, that's how it was, you know, you described our town and the flood and how my parents, what, you know, what I really was writing about were emotions that everybody has in a family. Um, this, the other struggle is when people said, as I mentioned before, why do you 
write about mothers with broken English? Why don't you write positive male role models? Why don't you, you know, it's all these list of things of societal wrongs people perceive that they think that one work of fiction or one fiction writer should address. Um, so that was difficult, but there's so many more fiction writers out there now who are Asian American. They can, you know, cart that load. I don't have to do that anymore. Um, the, the, what I get now um, on Facebook, you know, I write a lot of political opinion, and, um, and I've had people who say things like, I don't have to, I don't come to this page to hear what you think. Go back and do what you are supposed to do, which is think. Okay. Um, so I, I, I just, you know, a lot of my stuff has to do with immigration. And um, apparently I shouldn't have an opinion on that, even though my parents immigrated and they were illegal for a while. Um, yeah. Please keep writing about politics. <laughs> All right, Stesha says one more question, so we're going to... Oh. <laughs> Listen, there was one more question. Don't clap yet. Um, so I thought we'd end with a craft question. This is someone who says, as a budding writer, I find myself struggling to develop a regular writing routine. Would you please share what writing rituals or writing routines you practice in order to maintain and develop your craft? Don't follow my, my <laughs> regimen. I used to be very disciplined. I would get up. I'd you know, sit down at 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, and then I would finish at 7 when my husband came home from work. Unfortunately, my husband retired. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> there, the very last page of this book will give you an idea of what my writing day is like, and a lot of it is getting distracted and doing everything but the writing. Um, at the same time, everything is absorbing what's going to go into the writing. Um, that's the excuse. Um, thinking about the writing. You can only do that so, so much. Now, the discipline of this book is the one that I would recommend you do if you can bear it. And that is that every single day, or no, every single week, you have to turn in 15 to 30 new pages, and they should be an arc. It can't be just random stuff. They have to, as though this is a, 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 the form of an essay or the form of a chapter or a story. That is the goal that you have. And it's amazing what you can do when you're forced to do that, what you come up with through sheer terror. Right. <laughs> yes. Okay, there you have it. Sheer terror. That's the, that's the watchword. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Amy Tan spoke with Seattle writer Lori Frankel on October 25th at the Seattle Public Library's Central Library. Thank you again to Sonia Harris for our recording. You can hear the full recording on our website, KUOW.org. Tune in again soon.